0: Geotrek podcast number 10 and part two with Megan McAlonis Hernandez. Megan's a world traveler we heard in episode number nine about her adventures doing trail maintenance international travels and work with the park service in the grand canyon and and then out in guam in the tropical pacific this episode picks up with her adventures in guam we'll hear about her travels around the pacific islands and southeast asia also hear about some adventures diving in the tropical pacific and then how she left guam to come back to the states and live in death valley california site of the world's hottest temperature on record she experienced some temperatures there peaking at 130 degrees she'll talk about what it was like to live in that heat she's also going to share a personal story about how she unfortunately lost a lot of her possessions in a wildfire and a lot of great perspectives on just life and travel and cross cultural experience megan we're so excited to have you here on the geotrek podcast we're going to pick up now with uh, your stories about guam and some of the interactions and perspectives you had from living three years on that beautiful island it sounds like so you were based in Guam for about three years but it sounds like during that time you kind of used Guam as a launching pad to explore parts of the Pacific. Where are some places you went and what are some things you did?
1: Yeah, our first big trip we spent, uh, we flew over to Cambodia, spent a month in Cambodia and a month traveling through Southern 10. And then the following year we flew into Hong Kong and went to Myanmar for a few weeks and then to northern Thailand for a couple weeks so that was a great trip too we went to Japan spent a couple weeks in Japan yeah we did it we oh oh, and then other Micronesian islands too like Yap and Palau and some islands north of Guam, Rhoda and Saipan.
0: Were there places you went that you got the feeling like there, are, there aren't that many outsiders that go to those types of places? Like, did you go to some pretty isolated places that don't get a lot of visitors?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah. Well, Rhoda too, actually. The little island north of Guam called Rhoda, that's probably, there aren't that many people that live there. Uh, I mean, most people are related to each other that live there. It's a really interesting place. We ate, ate fruit bat <laughs> fruit bat and corn soup. Yeah, really interesting. But then also the island of Yap down south of Guam in Micronesia. We went there for Yap Days, which is their annual cultural festival. And it was their 50th festival that they put on. And being the 50th, I thought I'd I'd see a lot of travelers from different countries there, but no, there might have been maybe 20 foreigners there on that island for that weekend. <laughs> so mostly it was really the really locals amazing. kind of
0: celebrating this.
1: Yeah, hmm Yeah, their dance and their songs, the men and the women dance and sing separately. And it's really neat to see it through the day or through the night.
0: Was a lot of their dancing very percussion-based, like a lot of drums?
1: No, clapping. Maybe clapping with their singing and swaying, but not too many drums. They, they have a stick dance, which is really cool. It's like a choreographed stick dance where you hold a long stick with two hands, and then as you move your arms around, you're smacking the stick with the other people you're dancing with. That's it's a really cool dance.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. You must have just been like just soaking all that up, just like, you know, surrounded because there you're in this beautiful setting, but also a lot of really interesting cultural stuff going on around you.
1: Yeah, definitely. And most of the people there still live in like a hut style homes, you know, very, very with the land there.
0: Megan, let's go back to Rota. When, so Rota was the island north of Guam, right, without yeah. many people there. So how did you get there? Do, are there regular flights, or did you have to, like, book a flight, you know, a custom charter flight?
1: There are regular flights. You can actually see Rota from the northern tip of Guam, but where the Mariana Island chain is, it's where the Pacific Ocean meets the Philippine Sea. So the current is so strong that you it's really – difficult to boat over because it looks so close that there should be a ferry or something you know but it's too strong of a current and too big of waves to be able to do that so yeah there are regular flights to get over there
0: yeah so you can actually see it but it sounds like navigating by ocean is, is a little more dangerous and hard to do
1: yeah it definitely is i have friends who did it even with their sailboats but no one got away without puking.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like pretty rough seas. And you had mentioned there the Mariana Islands. That's, that's related with the Mariana Trench, right? The, the deepest um, trench in, in all the world, right?
1: Yeah, in the world. Yeah, they actually found a spam can in the bottom of the Mariana's Trench while we were there.
0: <laughs> a, a, a spam can? Like spam the food?
1: Like spam the food, yeah. Was that was that, spam I, in Guam?
0: I'd imagine if you dropped that spam cam, that would be a hard one to retrieve. I'm guessing if it's at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So, um, but that brings up just the amazing depths of the water there and uh, just these different things. and, And... from what I understand, when you, when you have these currents and stuff, you bring in nutrients and a lot of different kinds of fish. I mean, and this gets into you, you diving a lot in that part of the world. I mean, how did you choose diving spots? And I mean, what was diving like there in the Pacific?
1: Oh, it's beautiful there. Really clear water. I mean, if you're not going during like a storm season or something, the water can be really clear. And there's a lot of beyond the fish and the sharks and sea turtles and all those wonderful things. Um, There's a lot of interesting shipwrecks too. Like one time we dove to a sunken Japanese plane In one dive you can go to where a German ship had sunk and a US ship sunk on top of it and the two of them are touching right about 100 feet deep. It's really cool. So there's some really interesting dives out there.
0: Yeah, that sounds spectacular. And I'm guessing with the water so clear, you probably get a lot of illumination of, of the sunlight under the water, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you can. You can see really far deep, even 100 feet deep. You can see pretty well.
0: Well, that's spectacular. So so those shipwrecks, it sounds like, you know, some military stuff's involved, like a Japanese plane. Was that a plane from World War II?
1: Correct. Yeah, it was. We're
0: we're in the Pacific National Historic Park. Does that include some areas under the water or is that just on land?
1: The National Park Service does protect uh, the reef around the park on the land too. So yeah, it is protecting the water. So there are more regulations on fishing and stuff in those areas. And we would take out kid groups, junior rangers, and have programs in the reefs to teach them about the different fish and coral and things like that. We had youth also help us study coral bleaching out there too. So we'd take out these charts and look at the color of the coral in comparison to the coral colors on the chart we had. And then um, every year we could see if the bleaching was getting worse or getting better or anything like that. It was really fun doing this Northwing programs.
0: Yeah, it's especially fun, I think, when you get kids out in the water, because they're just so naturally curious to start with, you know, and um, under, it seems like underwater, there's always surprises, you know, and it's such a good learning laboratory.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, big time.
0: Megan, if you were to give us a snapshot history of Guam in World War II, I mean, basically, what what happened there? In
1: 1941, uh, the Japanese came, and there were uh, military on the island at the time, but it was The island was used more as like an R&R camp type thing for soldiers to get some rest. So the Americans that were there when the Japanese came just fled. They, they weren't willing to fight. They weren't capable of fighting. So the Americans left and left the Chamorro people there. And the Japanese came and started to use the Chamorro people as slaves, really, to haul their things up into the jungle, to build their hideouts and things like that. Um, They put the women and children in camps, and oftentimes they weren't given enough food and water, so some people died in those camps. But for four years, the Japanese had rule over Guam, and in 1944, uh, the U.S., finally were able to get Marines together and have a plan. And with their plan, they were able to take back the island in just a matter of a few days. I think by the third day, we had totally overcome the Japanese and took the island back.
0: Well, and I'm, I'm guessing the park kind of commemorates just uh, that whole time of history.
1: Yeah, so that national park has seven different park units to it two or three of the main units are right on the coast and they're places where the marines landed and uh, it shows shows the strategy that the u.s had to uh, take over a peninsula that the ships could come and kind of seek refuge in so these two beaches on either side of the peninsula were where the marines landed and then they were able to, to take control of that peninsula and then work their way up into the hills and have one troop kind of go to the south and wrap around the south and then came north. And that was kind of the way that they were able to take the island back.
0: Well that's you know it's powerful when you see the strategy of these battles kind of portrayed. I've been to Pearl Harbor twice and there's something about actually seeing the maps and then looking beyond the map into the water and just you know you're seeing actually what the landscape is you know. I'd imagine that was pretty powerful there to be there in Guam and, and actually see the landscape where all this happened.
1: Yeah and we have this one area Aston Bay Overlook where it looks over at Aston Beach, which is one of the main beaches where the Marines landed. And at the overlook, there's a memorial site that has all the names of the Chamorro people and Americans that were killed during the war and the Chamorro families affected by the war. And that's a really special place.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, it, and it's really cool that you spent multiple years in some of these places like the Grand Canyon, Guam, and uh, we're gonna get to Death Valley here in a minute, but it, it I, I think it really enabled you to kind of let the culture and, and the, the vibe of a place kind of soak in. You know, it sounds like it, a lot of this is really in your long-term memory.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think three years is a magic number.
0: You know, I've lived in Alaska for three years, for Africa for about two to three. And there is something about, it's just, I, I feel like it's the minimum time to really let the place really soak in. Like you start to become part of a community, right? And like, maybe yeah. just pick up the vibe of the local culture and see a couple of years go by with all the seasons. There is something magic about that, that I'd have to agree with you.
1: Yeah.
0: Megan, so did you go to Guam knowing it was going to be a three-year assignment or did that just like abruptly come to an end?
1: No, actually, we had applied and gotten four-year term positions there. So we expected to stay for the full four years. I mean, we always said, you know, we'll give it two or three years, see how it goes. But we would have loved to stay longer, I think, too. But there are a few factors into why we left Guam. The main one being that I lost my position there. So it was an interesting time with the National Park Service where there's an audit done. And, you know, of course, I'm very low on the totem pole in the Park Service. But in Washington, D.C., what they determined was that the National Park Service was abusing temporary employees. And so we were hired there to do work that was more like work that needed to be done every day by a permanent employee. So, for example, you know, going to the park units and putting the flags up in the morning, taking care of the public restrooms, mowing and weed whacking and picking up trash and emptying trash cans, like all these maintenance things that need to be done every day for the life of the park. But we were hired as temporary employees. So I also feel like there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C. that don't understand that there are people that don't want to be permanent employees, too, because in the beginning of my career, um, like we talked about already, I I loved moving around and going to different places, and, you know, wasn't necessarily looking for a permanent job, you know, I, I like the idea of working seasonally and being able to travel and do other things, not just go to work every day, you know, so, but through this audit, it meant that I had to Uh, reapply for my position under a different job description. So when I went to reapply for my position, uh, which would have been for my fourth year of working there, I didn't make the hiring cert because veterans get preference points and Guam has so many veterans on it being that, you know, it's a big military island with a big Navy base and an Air Force base and Coast Guard and Army National Guard, there are a lot of veterans there. So only veterans made the hiring certificate, and I didn't, I I wasn't able to get my job back. So with that, it was like, hmm, what's next? You know, and I had all kinds of ideas in my head. And by you know, living there three years and I'm a very social person, you know, the lieutenant governor of Guam gave me a reference to work for Guam's Department of Agriculture, for example. Like I I could have found work, just might have taken a little time to get back into it, but I could have found something. But in the meantime, my husband's like, you know what, like, you know, I don't really want to work here without you working for the park too. And we had things going home back on mainland too, with especially with my husband's family. For example, there are a few things, but um, his dad had gotten cancer and uh, went through surgery and had was kind of fighting that and overcoming that, that was going on. And also the Tubbs fire in October, 2017, one of the first big California wildfires that hit over 6,000 structures. Um, One of those structures was my in-laws house, the house that my husband grew up in. And that's where we left all of our things. When we had left Grand Canyon, we had drove my van um with all of our stuff to Santa Rosa that all went up in smoke you know so there so were you a lot lost of lost your
0: possessions in that fire
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm.
0: did that, that was- include like even like photo albums and like sentimental stuff that you can't get back
1: oh yeah man. yeah artwork from the different countries i visited all my journals were there how i mean it was traumatic
0: Oh, That's time. super traumatic. Cause I mean, a lot of what you've said in this podcast is like learning how to downsize and you're like, Oh, when I travel, yeah. I can, re- I can get first aid kits. I can get clothing. I can get these things in places where I'm going. And it sounds like you've downsized quite a bit, but these, these things you're talking about that you lost in that fire, they're some of the irreplaceable things.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, to be able to live out of your van, you can't have a lot of material possessions you know but these things were kind of the the ones that had I had that emotional bond to you know were the things that that I kept in my van with me so and yeah it's really crazy how it all happened like when we were still in Grand Canyon there's a woman who works in Grand Canyon in the summer and goes to Saipan the other island in the northern Mariana Island chain to work in the winter, and she told me when I talked to her about my move, she was like, you know, don't take anything that's important to you because it'll get moldy. She's like, I took books and photos, and they ended up getting ruined by the humidity of, you know, the tropical island life, so I left at that type of stuff back in California, even our marriage certificate, for example. Like, I left wow. all, all my... <laughs> All my most valuable things I had left behind, emotionally valuable. Sure,
0: know? and and doing it in a responsible way because, you know, you were, you were told, hey, don't take this stuff to Guam, it'll yeah. get moldy. Leave it yeah. in storage at your in-laws in California where it's going to be safe, right?
1: Yeah, I thought it would be safe.
0: <laughs> did you know that fires were threatening your in-laws' house, or were you told, like, after the fact?
1: Oh, my word. Yeah, it was really crazy. So living in Guam it's I think 16 hours time difference from California. So, and you know, for, I think 14 hours from the East Coast or something like that, I don't know. It's, it's around there, but anyway, I could really only talk to family in my morning on Guam and it was their night before. So I'm used to phone calls from the family in the morning. If a phone call in the morning comes, you know, it's people wanting to talk. But this one particular day, um, we got a phone call at 9 p.m. And I'm like, why? I said, Aaron, why is your mom calling you? This? You know, that's like four, three, four in the morning for them. So... It uh, would just be
0: very unusual timing.
1: Yeah, very unusual timing. We're, we're getting ready for bed. I think we are already in bed talking to them. You finished
0: your day and their day hasn't really started yet. They shouldn't be up at 4.30 in the morning.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Vaughn said, you know, we're safe. We're at your brother's house. But there's a fire that, you know, we might not have a house to go back to in the morning. And Aaron and I are like, what? No, no way. I mean, when they were talking about the fire, it had to cross what, a five-lane freeway, I mean, it just seemed impossible for it to happen. Like, no, no one thinks that's going to happen to them, you know, no one, even even with the fire that close, you know, but sure enough, we wake up the next morning to photos of of it looking like a bomb had gone off, you know, every house in the neighborhood was on the ground. You could still see the blue flame from all the gas lines burning. My van was nothing but a metal shell. It was crazy.
0: Wow. That had to be really hard to just digest and process. Like you said, in a way you became a minimalist and had very few possessions, but the possessions you, the long-term possessions you had that were not with you were there in that house.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. So they were in the process of rebuilding when uh, we decided to leave Guam and come back.
0: Come so back. had you already at that point been expecting to come back to the mainland US or like did the fire um, encourage you to, to come back sooner?
1: Uh, so the fire was in October, 2017 and we didn't move back till June of 2018. So at, you know, at the time of the fire, we're like, well, you know, what can you do? You know, what's done is done. We decided to wait to come back until February. We came back stateside for a visit. That was after my father-in-law had gone through all his treatments, chemo, radiation, surgery, cancer treatments. So we decided to wait till that was all done and, and he was feeling better. So we came back in February. So after being gone from the states, for two and a half years. That was our first time coming back. And we got to see, you know, the neighborhood all <laughs> completely uh, just nothing but empty lots, you know, when we returned. FEMA had come through and kind of taken all the soil up and things like that. There was lumber out front by the road, I remember.
0: Just like mind-boggling, right?
1: Yeah, really mind-boggling. And you know, maybe at that point we had started thinking like, "Oh, we should probably come back closer to family," but hadn't taken uh, hadn't taken any steps in that direction yet. It really wasn't until uh, probably April, May, when I lost my job position, that we we're like, "Maybe we should just go back stateside." Then.
0: So um, so Megan, coming off, it sounds like. It was around 2017, the fire happened. Uh, Around that time, you had lost your job in Guam. So it seemed like a position open for you to come back to Southeast California there with uh, Death Valley. Uh, What was that like, that transition to Death Valley? And then again, you're going from a very humid place this time to a very dry place. I mean, what was that transition like?
1: Yeah, so that was actually mostly my husband's decision to move to Death Valley. He got a permanent job there, his first permanent Park Service job. And yeah, I was I was all game for it. I had only been to Death Valley once before. We had driven through the night actually on our way from Grand Canyon to Santa Rosa when we were moving, and I had seen it under moonlight that night during the drive. But I I didn't really know what to expect. But it is gorgeous over there with the mountains and you know, almost completely treeless, you can see so far, and the dryness, yeah, so going from humidity, you know, in a humid place, I always feel like I swell up like a grape, and then when I live in the desert, I feel like I kind of shrink like a raisin, so I could, I could literally feel my skin (laughs) kind of just shrinking up, you know, and, and felt the need, I couldn't use coconut oil, Anymore after a shower like I needed thick olive oil to be able to To keep my skin moisturized living in a place like that But it's still really beautiful and I love living there. We live there for almost three full years there too
0: Yeah, you know that the mountains there are so far away, right? Because it's just the, the valley is I think a lot deeper than people realize.
1: Yeah, so the the valley Death Valley gets as low as 282 feet below sea level in Badwater Basin. It's all salt, just giant salt flat. And to the west, the Panamint Mountains. The tallest point is over 11,000 feet tall. So on the on the east side, right up against that lowest point in North America is The Black Mountains, which are 6,000 feet, almost straight cliff up. So it's a very deep, narrow valley, which is why it gets so hot, because the heat comes down from the sun, and it can't really escape. It just keeps cycling in the valley like a convection oven. And the hottest time of day actually isn't until about 4 p.m. when we get our hottest temperatures of the day. It doesn't cool down until after the sun will set behind the panamits.
0: So you're just baking there uh, for much of the year, right? Just uh, unbelievably hot temperatures.
1: Yeah, yeah. August of 2020 is when we hit 130 for the first time since, what, early 1900s.
0: (laughs) And you know, as far as I know, climatologically, Death Valley has the hottest official temperature record on earth. I think 134, I believe. was the highest temp I mean that's just but you were you were only Megan you were only four degrees off from the hottest temperature ever recorded on earth I mean that's that's exceptional
1: yeah totally and it is hot at that time like you can't be outside without shade in that temperature for longer than a few minutes I mean yeah it's just like a furnace really It's like a furnace. It's like opening your oven door and having that wave of heat come when you step out of your house or office.
0: I'm dying to know, Megan, the 130 temperature, did you just stay inside or did part of you just have to step outside and feel what 130 feels like?
1: You know, that week leading up to the 130, we had already been in 125, 127. It was like the high 120s every day, but it was on a Sunday. My husband was working. And I was at home with our dog and I went outside and I'm like, man, it is extra hot today. And 2020 COVID time, you know, there were very few people traveling through our park that summer. Usually in the summer, it's mostly Europeans or people from other countries that come to experience the heat, they say. but. I decided to go down, I lived in Cal Creek, three miles up from Furnace Creek. And in Furnace Creek is where the visitor center for the park is and a big thermometer. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go see what that thermometer says. So I didn't even really bother putting real clothes on. I was just like wearing a sarong and running shorts in a tank top, no bra, you know, just that summer I barely wore any clothes. Did you have so the I- bonnet? I had my bonnet of course of course you did yeah (laughs) and I drive down to the visitor center expecting no one there and here the parking lot is filled full every space and there were news cameras there from Las Vegas and LA and I'm like what in the world is going on I was totally unexpecting this and uh I, so I find a place to park and I walk up to the thermometer and sure enough, it says over a hundred, the thermometer there always runs hot. It's usually about three degrees hotter than the actual air temperature. And it said 133 and I'm like, oh my word, It hit 130 today. I couldn't believe it. And the, the newscaster woman, she had this, little cup with chocolate in it that was just melting and she was showing the camera look how fast this chocolate is melting and there were people there with uh, ice blocks of ice like frozen bottles sitting on their heads trying to stay cool in the heat as they watch this news program go on It was really interesting. Well and you
0: were there to experience that history. I mean and you know if if you're going to be in 127 it might as well be 130 and break all the records and you can say you were there for it right?
1: Yeah yeah might as well.
0: (laughs) still super hot. So there you were it sounds like it was quite like a news event just historic right? This was the hottest temperature in a long long time.
1: Yeah it was historic. I mean we the park made t-shirts for us all that said 130 for all of us that were living there at the time.
0: You know, I have to ask you this. I spent a few winters biking in Alaska in temperatures as cold as minus 51. And it it changed my whole scale of temperature. I remember one time riding a bike home And I remember thinking, I know it's really cold, but I can actually feel warmth in the air tonight. And I said, when I get home, I'm going to check the thermometer immediately. I remember getting home, I went to the thermometer and it was exactly 0.0, but I could actually feel some warmth in the air because I had gotten used to like 40 and 50 below. I'm so curious after, you know, getting up 127, 129, 130, did that just like change your whole scale? Like did a hundred start to feel like not that hot at all?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. A hundred, I mean, when it dropped into the nineties, like, even then, you could wear blue jeans again, you know? <laughs>
0: it probably felt, it felt cool, right?
1: Oh, cool, yeah. At, at nighttime, like, it could actually get chilly sometimes when it's, you know, 110 in the day and 90 at night. You put a, you put a jacket on.
0: Yeah, it kind of just recalibrates your whole scale, you know. Um, And it sounds like you've really seen a lot of extremes in your life with uh, with the extreme heat. Uh, Some of your first treks were in the Himalayas with some of the highest mountains in the world, right? I mean, that, in a way, I mean, that's such a cool experience, but then I wonder, does that kind of ruin a lot of other places? Because like, it's hard. How do you match, you know, um, hiking in the Annapurna circuit, you know?
1: You know, every place I go to is so different. People ask me all the time, what's your national park or what's the fa- what's the favorite country you've ever been to? And I have the hardest time answering that question. I mean, I'm also the kind of person I can't decide what my favorite color is either. Like I I love I love everything that I see and I do, you know? There's just so many different variables to each place that for me it's hard to compare and to pick a favorite
0: yeah and that's such a great perspective right because sometimes people will say where should I go on vacation and it's like well that depends largely on on your personality right and who you are there isn't necessarily one answer for that it sounds like you've been able to see the nuance in a lot of these different places you've been and and that each one's special in its own in its own right
1: yeah definitely and not just different per person but you know, sometimes, sometimes I want like a relaxing beach vacation. And sometimes I want an adventurous mountaineering vacation, you know, even just depends what, what day it is. (laughs)
0: Sure. It really depends on the context, right? Like, do you, yeah, exactly. Do you feel like you need to push yourself and have a little more exercise or have you been doing that? Like in, in your time working in the Grand Canyon, it sounds like on your job, you were doing a ton of strenuous hiking. It sounds like on a day off there, your body really wanted the rest.
1: Yeah, rest, but a good time to do road trips too. You know, you could, um, a lot of times with five days off, I could hop in a vehicle and drive up to Utah and check out the sites without having to hike too far in. So that's another way I would get my fix.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, Megan, with all these diverse and varied experiences, like how do you feel overall that traveling has changed you as a person?
1: A lot of it comes down to perspective like if I feel like it's changed my perspective on life compared to what I notice the perspective of a lot of other Americans have haven't experienced a lot of different kinds of cultures and you know people from all backgrounds with smiles on their faces and welcoming arms you know no matter what religion they believe in or you know, way they live, whether in a straw hut or not, you know. I think a lot of it comes down to perspective and just being able to live with an open mind and understanding that, you know, we're all very different, but that's, that's a wonderful thing, you know, just like all the different environments um, we have in our own country from wetlands to Uh, rainforest, temperate rainforests, to dry, hot deserts, Um, all those have their place in this world. You know, they're all very important things and they're all really great, even though they're all very different. And that's kind of how I feel about people too. You know, we can all be very different people and, and all get along really well and love each other. So that's where I think traveling has really helped me with that perspective.
0: Thanks, Megan, for that. That's a, that's um, really profound and insightful. And um, just you're you're drawing again from you know travel to. 35 countries and a lot of different experiences, both short-term and some of these long-term things as well. Uh, last question for you, Megan, for, you know, your young folks out there, maybe they're 18, 19 years old listening to this podcast. They want to get out there and explore, but they're like, how do you even get on that path of, of going overseas or either short-term or longer-term? And what would your advice be for, say, your, your teenagers or your, your, your young 20s, you know, that want to get out there and explore? What advice would you give them?
1: Well... For me, what I did was I didn't complete a degree. College is very expensive in the U.S., and I realized at a young age that I couldn't afford it, but you know, most people can't, and they just go into debt, but I had a big fear of debt at that young age, and I didn't want to be tied down, so that was one part of my life that I kind of pushed aside. I went to the Baltimore School of Massage and became a massage therapist. So I knew I would always have something to fall back on if I if I needed it. But I think not accruing that debt at a young age is what gave me the freedom to be able to only work half a year, to be able to live out of a tent, you know, and not, you know, not have bills, not pay rent, not I didn't have a cell phone until shoot pretty late compared to most people. <laughs> so you really so, lived
0: very simply through that time. Like you probably weren't it. making ten, a ton of money doing trail maintenance, but it sounds like your expenses were extremely limited.
1: Exactly, and that was that's really what did it. It was, it was about my priorities in life. So my priorities at the time were to, to be able to, you know, work doing something I love to do and save my money and travel. And I just I kept reminding myself like if there's something I wanted to buy or you know go to a nice restaurant or something I would remind myself no like you know if I spend thirty dollars at this restaurant that could give me three nights in Peru you know at a nice hostel (laughs) so you know just I just continuously reminded myself of where I wanted my money to go and I looked into the future and I was able to save my money enough for a flight and. And to be able to be in another country for a few months at a time, and and it worked out really good. But you know, I don't, I don't want to be here telling young people don't go to college. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It, what I like though is you're you're giving people a different perspective because some people I think it's implied in some families if you don't go to college you're a failure, you know, and it sounds like you you were very careful and very intentional, and you knew what your priorities and your values and goals were
1: yeah and i'm I'm really thankful that my parents uh, didn't hold me back from kind of living out my dream the way I did, you know they in a lot of ways just kind of sat back and watched and You know, I know they were curious what I was doing, wondering if I was making the good decisions or not. And, you know, there are times that I know I caused them a lot of stress, especially when I went to East Africa. My mom told me she had a lot of nightmares and ended up getting shingles, the adult chicken pox, um, which I know can be very painful. So, you know, it's hard for me to to see that too and to know that but yeah I'm really thankful that you know they gave me a lot of opportunity to just kind of live my life the, the way I wanted to live it and they, there would be comments of what are you doing or you're not being responsible or when are you ever going to settle down but the longer I did it and the more I moved around and the more often I came home with photos and stories to tell them the more they realized how much they could even live vicarious through me and you know then their friends would always be asking oh where's Meg now where's Meg now and that's actually how I came up with that Instagram whatever you call it name
0: (laughs) it fit perfect you know megan i've come up with this term that i label my favorite people and they're responsible free spirits right they're free spirits but they find a way to do it responsibly and that's really what you ended up doing like with so much work with the park service right i mean you ended up traveling the world but then having flexibility and also but having in a sense, a a career, but, but in a way, one that gave you flexibility and let you travel and let you do things, you know, and um, I think that's, you know, you really fit like the perfect example of someone to me who's like the responsible free spirit. It's like, you didn't just, you know, wing it and just travel the world with no plan, but you also always kept your values and, and flexibility there that you, you know, could go to some different places and explore. Yeah. Well, Meg, thank you so much for taking time. Thank you for coming on Geotrack. And it's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm going to be following Where's Meg now for sure. And excited to see where your travels take you in the future.
1: Thank you, Hal. I really enjoyed talking with you too.
0: Wow, what an amazing podcast series to end season one of the GeoTrek podcast. Megan really encompasses what we're trying to do here with GeoTrek. It's these stories about adventure travel, experiences around the world, and you know, insights into extreme weather and disasters. Megan had a lot of great stories and lessons learned to share with us. If you want to follow her on Instagram, again, her account is where's underscore meg underscore now. There's no apostrophe. It's just W H E R. ES underscore MEG underscore now. She updates it periodically and has a lot of really interesting photos. Hey, if you have ideas for a podcast in season two, we're going to be kicking off early in 2022. Give us a shout. Let us know of some guests that you think would be great guests on the GeoTrek podcast. Thank you to our faithful listeners for supporting us and listening to us and encouraging us through this first year. I had a blast meeting a lot of the guests online and talking to them and getting their interviews and a few of them in person as well. We'll see you in 2022 and uh, keep exploring the world.